0: and Welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church you can visit anglicandolby.org.au This week's sermon is part of a new series called The Good Fight and it focuses on an overview of 1 Timothy and then on 1 Timothy 2 and it's entitled Organized Religion. We hope you enjoy the sermon
1: first reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, found on page 1457 of the pew Bibles. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate to women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was born first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness and propriety. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
0: God. Well, have you ever come across someone who says, "I don't like organised religion"? It's a bit of a buzzword these days, and I certainly have come across people who say, "I really don't like organised religion." And when they say that, it Makes me think, well, do you like disorganized religion? Because I can do disorganized religion. I can do bad PowerPoints. I can do sermons that even I don't understand. Um, (laughs) I do disorganized religion, and still no one has come up to me and said, Oh, Dave, in you I've found disorganized religion. It's exactly what I was looking for. You see, what I think people are saying when they say they don't like organized religion. Is actually the opposite, that they don't like disorganized religion. When a priest is allowed to do whatever they like, people get hurt. When leaders in the church are more concerned with power, prestige, or money, people get taken for granted. When charismatic and wonderful lay people with a little bit of knowledge break away from the church, you get a cult. Disorganized religion is a disaster. And 1 Timothy is a book about disorganized religion. We're kicking off this series called The Good Fight. And if you were to ask me what this book is about, I'd say it's our call to the good fight against bad religion, disorganized religion. In 1 Timothy 1.18, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open before you, just to make sure that I'm not making up porky pies this morning. 1, 4, 5, 7 of the church Bibles. 1, 4, 5, 7 and 8 is uh, where we'll be focusing today. But in 1 Timothy 1.18, we read, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith, And a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Here we see 1 Timothy is a letter from an older pastor, Paul, to his apprentice, Timothy. He wants him and he wants us to fight the good fight so we can hold on to our faith. So today I'm going to give you a quick overview of 1 Timothy and then we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2 in a verse by verse breakdown. In the book of Acts, which tells us what happened after Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven, we read about Paul's first visit to Ephesus in chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll summarize it for you. He travels to the city and finds people who love God and a church grows around the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God grows the church, people are healed, and Jews and Greeks become Christians. Paul soon goes on to preach elsewhere and he puts his apprentice Timothy in charge. Timothy was perfect for this job because he had a Jewish father, sorry, he had a Greek father, sorry, his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek and so he could speak into both cultures. That said, Ephesus was a crash of cultures because ministry wasn't there, there wasn't easy. The people, the the city was dominated by a temple to the goddess Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. At one point, a silversmith um, started a riot because he was really upset because people were becoming Christians and ruining his business because no one was buying his silver statues of Artemis. And so he started a riot to try and arrest and beat up the Christians there. There was growth but there was also a lot of violence and conflict. And so 1 Timothy is the first of two letters Paul wrote to Timothy around the year 60 AD. Timothy obviously wrote his letters to Paul, and we don't know what was in those letters, but we can get an idea of what he's dealing with in 1 and 2 Timothy. It seems there were heresies creeping into the church, that having children and eating meat was bad. On top of this, there were old Christian men with drinking problems and young Christian widows who treated the church like a fashion show. Mm -hmm. Timothy is giving the task of standing up to this chaos and fighting for the integrity of the gospel. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, Paul says, Stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to treat Not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. He then reminds Timothy how God saved him by grace through faith and bursts into a song of praise. There's a number of these songs of praise throughout 1 Timothy. And he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is praying that the God of order and peace, the King of the church, would make the church, us, a place of order and peace. And this brings us to 1 Timothy 2, which I want to focus on today. The final verses of this passage are very controversial, so we're going to go through them verse by verse. Verse 1 begins with Paul saying, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is his goal, not controversy. Here we see Paul encouraging intercessory prayer. Prayer times in church shouldn't be fillers between songs or times when we tell God what's on at church. Mm-hmm. There should be times when we recognize that the gates of heaven are open and that the God of all power and might is listening. It's radical that Paul encourages Timothy to pray for kings and those in authority because the emperor at the time was Nero and he wanted to wipe out Christians. Here, Paul recognises that God in his infinite wisdom can bring good from evil. As Pilate gave the order for Jesus to be crucified to win our salvation, so we are encouraged to pray for earthly leaders. That includes pollies and leaders that we don't see eye to eye with. Next we read, This is good and pleases God, our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Prayer pleases God and reflects his heart for all people. He wants us to know him and to make him known. John Stott, Anglican theologian, says we should pray for God's world because this shows the compass of God's desire. As we've said in the past sermons as as we've seen in past sermons, if people end up in hell it's because they've excluded themselves from God. God wants all people to be saved and know the truth. I love how in church every Sunday at St. John's volunteers lead us in prayers for our church, for our community and for our nation and for our world. We shouldn't be focused on ourselves. We don't need to focus on being articulate and to use fancy words, but we need to use prayers that cover God's world. A well-prepared intercessor can make faith come to life. Next, we look at verse 5, and in verse 5, Paul writes, "'For there is one God and one mediator "'between God and men, the man Christ Jesus.'" who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Now, some have tried to use verse 4 to promote universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven. But this totally jars with verses 5 and 6. Here we see that Jesus is our ransom sacrifice. Like a hijacker will demand a ransom to set hostages free, so you and I are captive to our sin, powerless to save ourselves, until Jesus substitutes himself for us and dies in our place. This is something that should be reflected in our prayers. And it gives glory to God. Next, let's look at verse 7. And for this purpose... I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. This again is radically countercultural, and Christianity shook Ephesus. Paul grew up a Pharisee and a Jewish teacher. And at the time, Jews only believed that God cared about other Jews. But through his radical conversion, Paul realized that God was sending him to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. For us, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And while the disorganized religious people in Ephesus question Paul's authority, he's a herald appointed by God to share the one true faith with the world. Friends, prayer is your superpower. And so we need to pray for people. Pray for people in the supermarket when they tell you they're having a bad day. Pray for your sick relative over the phone. Pray for your friend who's just moved house. The other day, uh, a lady came into church and she asked for um, a petrol voucher. So I gave her the petrol voucher uh, from the Minister's Returnal, which they provide, uh, and I sat down with her and asked her if I could pray for her. She looked at me as if I was sprouting another head uh, and thought about it and then said no and then left. So what did I do? I prayed for her as she left in her car. (laughs) We can always pray and our prayer lives should never be perfunctory or half-hearted. Paul continues on the topic of prayer as he focuses in, in the last couple of verses, on individual people. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Remember the riot in Ephesus? This was a violent town. Here Paul is calling the men to lift themselves up in prayer and in unity. Jewish men at the time would lift their hands high in prayer and praise to the heavens. But the physical posture isn't key to what Paul's saying here. It's the posture of the heart that truly matters. That's why Paul warns men that they shouldn't use their hands in anger and fighting. Paul is calling for peace and order in the church. It's possible that he's speaking directly into physical arguments here between men in the church, or even between men and women. Whatever he's talking about, it's vital that men today take note. This today applies to domestic violence, as much as it did then. Recent surveys have found alarming stories and rates of domestic violence in the church, particularly in the Anglican church. Men today still try to use religion to intimidate the women in their lives. And this is not acceptable and should never, ever happen. Our hands and our hearts need to align as we seek to follow Jesus. And this brings us to verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, Paul here is not calling for some sort of Taliban style theocracy. Context is needed here. Ephesus, as we saw before, was the home of the Artemis cult. Artemis was the female goddess of fertility, and the city was dominated by her temple the temple was led exclusively by female priests who practiced seductive rituals. There was all sorts of really salacious stuff going on in the temple of Artemis. And it seems some of this is creeping into the church and the women in the church are turning worship services into fashion shows They've got elaborate hairstyles with gold and jewelry dripping from them, and they use these as weapons to put other people down and gain status in the church. I remember in grade eleven my my sister had a semi formal and she she wore pants as part of her outfit to her semi formal. And the popular girls they they bullied her before the formal and then after the formal and she, she she would come home crying. It seems something similar is happening here in Ephesus. And so here again, the Bible isn't telling us never to wear jewellery or nice clothes to church. Instead, what we wear reveals our hearts so often. Paul is encouraging us to dress in ways that honour God, not trying to bring attention to ourselves. And particularly, he tells us to put on good deeds, Clothing ourselves with kindness and gentleness and love, so that our outward appearance, as well as our hearts, point others to Jesus. Now, Paul isn't done saying politically incorrect things, so let's look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Here again, historical context is helpful. I saw some husbands looking over to their wives. <laughs> <I> just said... <laughs> okay. Pray for me. This is um, this is this is tough stuff. Um, here again, context is helpful. At the time, women weren't allowed to go to school. And so they couldn't speak the language that the preachers often used, the language that Paul's letter was written in. Because Timothy would front up to the church and he would read it in the coiny the Greek um, that was common to the empire but was not common to the people in Ephesus. And you can imagine the chaos as um, wives would probably turn to their husbands and say, what is he saying? You can imagine a room of a hundred people going, what's that? What, did he really mean that? You can imagine the chaos that would happen. What's radical, though, is that Paul is saying that women should learn. Here, he's talking about women and men being created equal in God's sight and in God's image. And he's encouraging women to learn and to grow in their faith. It seems, again, that there's a faction of women in Ephesus who are throwing their weight around in the church, pitting men against women and challenging the leaders. Tom Wright, um, an Anglican theologian, notes here that there are too many female leaders in the New Testament for this to be a blanket ban on women speaking in church. And so I don't think it was wrong that Shirley read from the scriptures today. We think of Phoebe in Romans 16, Priscilla in Acts 18, and Lydia in Acts 16, who were all leaders and servants in the church. Even if you look at 2 Timothy, if you flick over there, it's it's very interesting. In 2 Timothy, Paul references Eunice, who is Timothy's Mother and Lois, his grandmother, who taught him the faith. This is not a ban on women's ordination or on women preaching in church. There are three main ways this verse is applied today one, that women should never preach or teach adult males, but they can teach women and children. Two, women shouldn't be leaders in the church, but with education they can teach. Or three, that Paul lost his marbles in the, at this point, um, and this has little to do with us today. This verse should basically be taken out of the Bible. Now, before I share my take on this passage, let's unpack what's written next. Verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Here Paul couches his words in the story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, God creates Adam, the first man, and places him in a garden and tells him he can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God then sees that Adam needs a helper. He's lonely. And so he creates Eve, a woman. Again, a woman created in God's image. Both Adam and Eve are made in God's image. And they become husband and wife, the first family. There's this incredible unity between Adam and Eve, as there is unity within the Godhead, within, trini- within the Trinity, This marriage reflects God's fullness and wonder. But sadly, Satan tricks Eve into eating from the tree and she gives fruit to Adam who is with her. Here we need to see that it was Adam's responsibility to tell Eve what God had said. She wasn't there, she wasn't created yet when God said to Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was also Adam's responsibility to protect his wife from deceit. But in this story, he's passive, he's absent, he's gone, he's checked out. Eve sins when she's deceived, but Adam sins with his eyes wide open and tries to run away from his role in his family. As a man, I know I often want to check out or run away from my role in my family. And I want to check out from my faith. Sometimes I'd rather watch TV than read my Bible or pray. Sometimes I'd rather scroll through Facebook for hours rather than spend time with my family. This is why I really think this verse calls on men today to step up and take responsibility for their faith. If they're married... They should take responsibility for the spiritual state of their families. My wife, as you know, is ordained and she preaches. And so I've struggled with these verses in the past. But what I've seen is that God has a clear calling on Zoe's life. So it would would be immoral and unkind of me to try and suppress her and suppress what God is doing in her life. Instead, these verses are calling on the men in the church in Ephesus to step up, to not be sidelined, but to lead and to serve in reverence and in humility. And this takes us to the final verse of this chapter, which is probably the weirdest and most politically incorrect for us to talk about today. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Some think Paul is calling out false teaching in the church from Greek religion, uh, which taught that having children was somehow disgusting and wicked, and a woman would forfeit her salvation by having a family. Others think this is a reference to Mary, and how through the role she played in her family, the saviour of the world was born. What Paul can't be saying is that having a baby will save you and take you to heaven, because he's just said that salvation comes through Christ alone. Again, notice how Paul joins the physical childbearing with something spiritual, holiness and love. Whatever was meant, Paul is defending the value of women in the church and promoting holy living and organized religion. So friends, whoever you are, male, female, single, married, unmarried, divorced or widowed, you have an important role in God's church. God is calling you into a harmonious way of life amongst his people. Organized religion might not be fashionable, but it's what Jesus is calling us to today. May we hear his call and commit to holy living forevermore.